We're in the series, and uh, we are looking uh, at new questions for a new generation. And these questions are going to be fun, and they're going to probably challenge us. But before we can dive into the questions, I felt like we needed to have one week before we get there to talk about uh, an important conversation. Because really what we have to do is we have to stop and talk about what's going to be the foundation. When we begin to answer these questions, on what basis are we going to answer these questions? What is the basis or the authority? And I get it, ooh, we hate that word authority. We don't care for that. But what is it? Where do we turn to figure out how we're going to even begin to address some really challenging questions? I mean, we're, we're probably going to make through this series some definitive statements. I hope we do. Um, some of them are going to be pretty easy. I think like next week, uh, Pastor Amy and I are going to talk about abuse in the church. Anybody heard about some of the abuse that's taken place recently? You know, I think it's, it's terrible because for years, Protestants, we saw what was going on in the Catholic church and we thought, whoo, not us. And then it came to our house, didn't it? And we saw that we couldn't run from it either. And it wasn't just the sexual abuse, the pastors abusing their authority, the absolute evil that that is. But then there was abuses of power and control and all these things. And it's very easy for us when we talk about those things. We will all look at that and we'll go, that's evil and it's wrong. If you don't believe that, don't raise your hand. We're just going to assume you do. But where do we base that on? Where do we get that idea? Where do we get to stand on that? Is it my opinion? I mean, after all, I am a pastor. You're welcome. I I guess that carries weight, right? But does it carry more weight than your opinion? If you have an opinion about that, what are you basing that on? And all this is great as long as we agree. As long as we come to some level of agreement, then everything's fine. But what happens when we get to maybe an issue that we have to talk about where we disagree? Then whose opinion, whose belief carries more weight. And how do we know? How do we know where to go? Your opinion, my opinion. What happens when we don't see eye to eye? Is there somewhere we can look beyond us to guide us beyond your truth and my truth to help us find the truth? Now, I realize even making that statement, the truth, to to believe that there is objective truth kind of is a challenging statement for our world today. We don't like to have many lines drawn and say, this is the answer. And even as we say that, we have to acknowledge that even with objective truth, we see objective truth through subjective eyes. And that should inform kind of how we respond. But how do we know this truth? And what, what about those things that we hold dear that contradict that truth? What do we do with those things? And how do we not create barriers to faith, barriers so high that people can't even get, a, get around them to see what we believe or see Jesus. How do we hold to truth? And this is a big one. How do we hold to truth and not create an us versus them mentality? Because if there's one spirit that we see so prevalent in the world today, it's create an enemy. Create an enemy. And as long as we share a common enemy, then we're okay. And that's just garbage theology, isn't it? I mean, for a church that for decades seems to be known more for what we're against than what we're for, how did we get here? 
How did we get to this place? And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at how do we respond to these things that might not line up with the things that we believe? What are these things and what, more importantly, are the essentials? What are the things that we really should hold firmly to and how do we respond when we're confronted with differences? It may be no shock to you, but since the time of Jesus, this has been a problem. This has been an issue. There's been discussion and even disagreement about even what are the essentials, what, what qualifies as an essential belief or idea. And now at the time of the New Testament, when you read through some of the letters, the letters of Paul and the letters of John and these things, you'll find that they didn't really mince words a lot. I mean, they'll call them like they see them, and they'll use this nice little word, heresy. And they'll call the people that teach these heresies, they'll call them false teachers. Now, that's not a word we use very much. In fact, this week I was talking with Amy, and uh, she, she, as we were talking, she said she was talking to somebody in their 20s, and they said, heresy, what is that? You guys know what heresy is? If you had to define it, how would you define it? Sacrilegious. You said against. Liars. Okay. False doctrine, false teaching. Yeah. Do you guys see this word being used around us sometimes? Not usually. You guys aren't on Twitter then. <laughs> I, I am on Twitter, unfortunately. I don't advise it necessarily. There are some good thinkers out there that I like to follow, but the algorithms, the way they work, they'll throw things in my feed and I just kind of have to go, how did you get here and stop showing me this? It is a word that is used some today, but usually what we see, it's used in a very defaming and demeaning way. And it's used really to shut down critics. And so, uh, you know, if somebody says something I don't like, we go, heretic. And what do we use that for? It just means I'm done with this conversation. It ceases to be a dialogue anymore. But let's, let's do define this first. You know, heresy, it's derived from the Greek word her, um, heteros, which simply means other. Other. Throughout church history, it did kind of become to mean more than that, which it meant that which is not orthodox. And of course, orthodox would be defined as those beliefs or practices that have been held throughout church history. And as I said, this isn't anything new from the very beginning. And we're going to jump in and see that about 15 years after Jesus' ascension, that the church was already having to deal with some of these heresies, these false teachings that they had to to deal with. But throughout church history, typically what would happen is there would be a belief that would rise up. It would be against the orthodox belief. And the religious leaders, Christians, would get together and they would say, okay, how do we, what do we believe about this? And that's really how a lot of our creeds came to us. They were in response to false teachings that were rising in the church. And so they'd get together and they'd produce the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or those things. And if you look at those creeds, it's possible that as you read them, you go, wow, there's some things that are missing in there. Like the Apostles' Creed, it kind of says, and we believe in Jesus was born of a virgin and died and rose again. It's like, oh, where'd the 30 years go? About his life, it's not there. There wasn't a controversy about his life. It didn't need to make it. And so that's kind of what we see throughout history. So you have this heresy and orthodoxy as different sides of the same coin. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight uh, actually wrote an article on what is heresy and what is a heretic. And he talks about uh, how this word is used today. And the first way he says this word is used is he says, it's anyone who doesn't believe something that we might think important. 
Does anybody have a problem with that? <laughs> it's kind of a broad category. I mean, all right, let's just put this to the test. Um, best French fries. Go. Who's got the best French fries? Okay, here are a lot of McDonald's. Anything other than McDonald's? Oh, you heretic. Don't even say that. Burger King. Do they even sell fries? Come on. See what happens here? Some, I think French fry pre- preparation and cut is important. And so I can call anybody that disagrees with me a heretic. There's a problem there, right? This is a very dangerous use of the word. And we do see this a lot. Um, a lot specifically with the second way we used it, see it used. It's when someone thinks a person is skirting with danger on a central theological issue. So it may be how you view atonement or the cross. Again, if you're on Twitter, man, you want to get some of these people really riled up. Then you start saying things like, well, the cross did more than satisfy an angry God, that it brought us the victory over sin, death, and the grave. And you'll just get all this pushback because there's a segment of theologians that think the cross did one thing, penal substitutionary atonement, and that is it. The angry God had to be satisfied. I mean, I'm very much a caricature of this position, and I apologize, but... The angry God had to be satisfied. And if you believe anything beyond that, you're a heretic. Because they would say, well, you're skirting with uh, a central theological concept. So whether it's atonement or whether it's your view of hell or final judgment or end times or all these things, we'll start classifying these people and their beliefs as heresies and heretics. So, but it's also not a good reason to throw that word around. Again, this area is where there can actually be some good debate, some good discussion, because they're not primary issues, they're secondary, and that's okay. We can hold to some secondary issues on some things. The third, and what McKnight says is the proper use of the word, is when someone whose teachings or beliefs undercut the very basis for Christian existence. That's not a bad definition, is it? So if we had to say, well, what is it or who is it that you could mess with that could undercut the very basis for our Christian existence? What qualifies in that category? Politicians. Politicians. <laughs> An atheist, maybe. But even their beliefs, what are their beliefs that, are, that they're undercutting? Really what they're undercutting It's not just that they believe in no God. They're undercutting Jesus. What is the very basis for Christian existence? Wouldn't we have to say that is Jesus? Because if Jesus didn't live, wasn't born, lived, died, rose again, and really we need all those things for this to matter, if that didn't happen, we wouldn't be here, would we? We'd be Jewish maybe, or we'd be Muslim or whatever else. We would be something other than Christian because everything we believe rises and falls on what we do with Jesus Christ. And so really, when we settle on this kind of an idea or definition, we see it gets very narrow, doesn't it? What we might classify as heresy. Now, if you look back at the first century church, you're going to see that, yep, they even lived by this definition because they were dealing with heresy, they were dealing with false teachings, they were dealing with people that were messing with Jesus in different ways. And so what I want us to do is let's kind of look and see if we can come up with a simple way to take what they learned and apply it for us as we look 
in the coming weeks to answer some very difficult questions. Now, I will tell you one interesting side note is that in the early days of Christianity, Christianity wasn't seen as a new faith, a new religion. It was actually seen as a subset of the Jewish faith, a heretical set of the Jewish faith. In fact, if you look from a Jewish perspective, what you would see happening was you would see these people going around perverting Judaism, telling you know, some non-Orthodox view of Judaism, and trying to convert people to that. And so you'd see them as heretics, and this is heresy. And so we can kind of understand, I want to stop these people from tempting these good Jews from becoming heretics. And I mean, it's exactly why the Apostle Paul was so rabid in his defense of Judaism early in his life. That's why he would rip people out of their homes as they were studying and, and talking about Christianity because he, he didn't want them doing that. He was trying to preserve the, 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 the Jewish faith, if it was. And he'd throw them in jail and he'd call them heretics for their beliefs in Jesus as God and as the Messiah. I mean, even when we look at Jesus, wasn't, I mean, he was called a blasphemer, but I think according to that definition of heresy, if we switched it to heresy for Judaism, wouldn't that be Jesus? He was a heretic as well. But when you begin to look at the church and what was happening throughout the early church especially, like I said, we only get to about 15 years of the church in existence before they really start having a problem and when you get to the book of Acts, you see this problem coming out and you see that the leaders were getting together and they met. It's known as the Jerusalem Council. It's about 48 AD, we think. There's this controversy brewing. And what was, the question was just simply this. What is required of believers? If you say you're going to follow Jesus, what is going to be required for you to do that? You see, because it did really start out as primarily a Jewish faith. And so all the people that were coming to Christ weren't non-Jews. They were Jews, and so that meant they were coming with an understanding of the Torah and the law and dietary restrictions and all these things. And so these, this group of people said, you know what? You don't just get to come to Jesus. Grace is great, but we, before you get there, you need to become a Jew. And so what that means is you need to follow the same laws and traditions that we do. We need, you need to follow the same diet that we do. You need to have the same circumcision that we do, which becomes a real problem for a Gentile guy who didn't practice circumcision. You know, but that was, you want it? That's what it's going to require. They were creating barriers. And Paul had been traveling around. He'd been telling Gentiles about Jesus. And he saw something. He saw these people transformed. He saw the Holy Spirit come upon them and empowering them. And so at the Jerusalem Council, they're debating all these things. And we get kind of an inside look at that in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 7. Peter is going to be the one here that addresses them. But let's look at what Peter says. It says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So remember, Acts 10, Peter gets the call from God to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, a centurion soldier, and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon them, and so he can't deny what's happening here. Peter continues, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by pulling on the necks or putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Man, what a testimony, right? I mean, they're saying, look, this is what happened. This is what we've seen. And so they get to discuss even more and more. And after much discussion, James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Nice, right? And so what's interesting is they did put some requests in place. They said, look, don't, offer, don't eat food that's been offered to idols. And really, I look at this more as a request because later, Paul in Corinthians, he's like, I don't care if it's offered to idol, eat it. If your conscience is good with it, it's fine. So you see, even there, it's not like they're going, this is a law. Watch what you eat, abstain from sexual immorality. But ultimately, for them, the decision was, we will not add anything to the good news of Jesus. It's going to be grace alone, faith alone. Now, see, this was known as the heresy of the Judaizers, adding good works and deeds for salvation. What's interesting is Paul really didn't care for this. In fact, in his letter to the churches in Galatia, he addresses this coming out of this conference. He sends a letter. He'd planted this church. He'd spent time there. He'd heard about their growth. But then he begins to hear that others, these Judaizers, are coming in to kind of present to them a different gospel specifically centered around circumcision. They were hung up on this thing. And so Paul writes to this, these churches and look what he says. Galatians chapter one, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, what is it? What was he talking about? Well, keep reading that letter at the end of that Galatians 6. He tells us, he says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. The other Jews are commenting, they're making their lives miserable. And the only reason they're telling you this is so that they'll get off their backs. He continues, he says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about it, about your circumcision in the flesh. You see, this heresy that Paul is dealing with, this false teaching, it's a Jesus plus philosophy. It's a Jesus plus mentality. They'd taken Paul's message and Paul saying, Jesus is all you need. And they said, yeah, and a little bit of circumcision and a little bit of the law and a little bit of this. See a problem? They'd taken an incredibly gracious invitation to join God's family and created a list of insurmountable barriers which kept most non-Jewish people from following or joining the family of faith. See, there's a, there's a word of warning for us here because even as we exist today, we must always look and we must always make sure that our presentation of the gospel and that our presentation of Jesus is no more than what Jesus said it was. We must make sure that we're not adding to Jesus saying, oh, you want Jesus? Well, that's great. But then Jesus and Jesus plus. That's the problem. 
So that's one of the problems they were dealing with, but that wasn't the only one. Because as you move forward throughout the early church, you realize that they had another issue to contend with. And John, in what we have is the letter of 1 John in our New Testaments, he addresses this. Look at 1 John 4. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's saying, you know what? You people have to be discerning. Don't just trust everything that's out there. If it's on Facebook, John's saying, don't just believe it because it's on Facebook. I mean, that's the Brent Clark interpretation. Um, He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and is even now already in the world. Now, you may be looking at that going, what in the world is he talking about? Well, there was this nice little belief that was beginning to develop and grow up in the churches called Gnosticism. Nice word, starts with a silent G, Gnosticism. And it's a belief that all matter is evil. Your flesh is matter, it's evil. And because Jesus can have nothing to do with evil, then Jesus couldn't have really come in the flesh. I mean, look at what he says. Any spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has not come in the flesh. And so this Gnosticist belief said Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. He faked it. And he only appeared to be human. So that denies the incarnation. And since he really wasn't human, there really wasn't any suffering going on. He really couldn't have died on the cross. Again, it looked like he did. He's a great actor. Oh, this hurts so bad. No, they're saying that none of that would have been accurate. And so John, in this letter, part of the reason he wrote was to address this false belief that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. And it's why if you look back to 1 John 1, 1, you find that he says this. Look at what John is saying. He says, that which was from the beginning, saying Jesus, which we have heard, says that we've heard his words, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at. And what's he say next? And that our hands have touched. John is saying, look, I've put my hands on this guy. He's real. He was in the flesh. He says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so what do we find in this false teaching? is that it's Jesus minus. We take away Jesus's humanity. And, and, and diminishing Jesus is always a dangerous path because it can lead us to a very fuzzy faith. Anything goes. Whatever is fine. And what we have to understand is just like adding things to Jesus is bad, taking away things from Jesus is equally bad and problematic for us. That's not Jesus either. Now, there were other controversies in the early church and throughout church history. There was one called the Arian controversy, and that was the belief that Jesus wasn't God, but he was God's first and greatest creation. You know, uh, there was another one, and I'm simplifying these. I hope you understand that. Uh, there was another one that uh, Pelagianism, which denies the very idea that a sin nature exists in humanity. And so it calls into question our need for a savior. And so again, it, that one's diminishing from Jesus. Now you may be thinking, Brent, thanks for the history lesson. This isn't really like you. What are you doing? Um, why would we spend time even looking at these? Because knowing what we believe is important. Knowing the foundation is critical. 
And understanding what is and isn't essential actually matters. You see, last year I ran across an article in Christianity Today, and it had the headline, The Top Five Heresies Among American Evangelicals. Now that's a headline that just grabs you, doesn't it? What are they? Well, they'd done a study. Lifeway Research was in there, and they do good studies. I mean, they're not discounted in uh, different ministries. And here's the things that they find. Here's the top five. 56%, number one, 56% said they didn't believe Jesus is the only way to God. They thought there were multiple paths. Now, remember, this isn't your average, everyday American person. They came to Ashworth one Sunday and started asking questions because we fall in that camp of American evangelicals, whether you want to or not. It's there. So these are people like us. 56%, more than half, believe that Jesus isn't the only way to God. Okay, that's telling. It leads me to question and say, well, then what do you do with Jesus's statement where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It's a challenge, right? Knowing what we believe is important. 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. There's that nice little Arian controversy there. I think the Apostle John would take issue with that. When John 1, 1, when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Nothing uh, without Him, nothing has been made that has been made. I mean, there's some differences there, right? The study continued. 43% believe Jesus is not God. We're getting dangerously close to half there. 60% agreed with the statement the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 60%, thank you Star Wars for that theology. <laughs> and then 57% agreed with the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are just good by nature. Again, we're Pelagianism, we're getting rid of that need for a Savior because you're good by yourself, you don't need a Savior. Now why do I tell you this? I don't tell you this to scare you. I certainly don't tell you this to go out and become the heresy police and start spouting heretic, heretic across all social media platforms. In fact, I hope that we seldom use that word to describe someone. But I think it's important for us to realize that there are things that matter. There are essentials. There is a foundation that we say is critical to understanding our faith. And it begins and ends with Jesus. And it comes around to who we know God to be, who is the Holy Spirit, where does the Bible fit in, is the Bible our authority or not, and our need for a Savior. Now notice, that list isn't 27 pages long. It's pretty short. In fact, if you want a synopsis of it, go to our church website, ashworth.church, and click About Us, Our Beliefs, and you'll find them. We have a very short and concise belief statement, but it's our, they are the things that we believe are the essentials. We believe there is one God, the Creator, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, who was born of a virgin, who lived and who was killed on a Roman cross and raised from the dead. And because of what Jesus did through His death and resurrection, He conquered sin and death in the grave. Because of that, God is building a new family that transcends race and ethnicity. 
and his new family is revealing to the world Jesus until the time that he comes to make all things new. And we know these things because God has given us the Holy Spirit and his word. You know, I get it. There's a, there's a movement right now to really diminish the Bible. And I will tell you, Baptists never had that problem. If anything, we made an idol of the Bible, equally problematic. But we, if we say Jesus is the foundation, then where do we get that? The Bible. The Bible becomes critical in understanding that. And outside of these things that I just said, there can be a lot of room for discussion, debate, and even disagreement. <gasps> no, not that word. Yes. You realize that we can come together and continue to worship if we don't see eye to eye on everything. But as long as we agree on the essentials. I think that's important. But we have to get Jesus right. We have to get Jesus right. It's not Jesus plus, and it's not Jesus minus. We've got to get him right. And that right there is the core of what we need to be focusing on. The Jesus we see and know in the Gospels. You see, I think the greatest heresy that we're tempted with is to try to dismantle Jesus, to take, uh, to take away from what we see, the words that he spoke, to make him something other than he is, to maybe make him vindictive, or unloving, or uncompassionate, to make him less than human or less than God, or distorting the gospel, the good news, to build up these walls of orthodoxy so high that no one can ever even get over them. In fact, you know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't come to build the walls. He came to tore the walls, tear the walls down. That's what we should be doing, looking for ways to remove the barriers as best we can so people have a clear view of Jesus. And we, what's that look like in our lives? It looks like being good neighbors. It looks like caring for the poor. It must talk about the love and the grace of God while holding fast to the truth of the essentials of our faith. Here's a visual way to look at it. We did this many years ago, but I think it's still good. You have the cross. That's not everything, but that's most of it. That represents Jesus, represents our faith, and we know that that's only a piece of it, but that's enough of what it is. It's the representation of our faith, salvation in Jesus. And we see the world around us and the people who might be searching and we tell them, you know what? You want to become to Jesus? You want to come and be a part of what he is? Then you need to believe certain things, even certain things beyond the essentials. And so we add that. We say, believe these things. And you have to add that, certain things about the Bible. And so we put up that barrier and that begins to come into play. Today, Man, we hear this a lot. If you want to follow Jesus, then you need to belong to a certain political party because Jesus would only vote one way. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you got to be that way. You also hear things like this. you got to do certain things. You need to pray so much. You need to read the Bible so much. You need to attend church so much. That's part of this as well. And not only that, but you know what? Keep a smile on your face. No matter what's going on in your life, hide it because Jesus fixes all the problems and everything is hunky-dory after that. So hide everything. We don't want you to be real. Just act like everything's fine. Because we all know that when we come to Jesus, he does take all of our problems away and we get prosperity. And that'll be all we experience, right? There's your nice heresy for today. And then what little of Jesus we might see at the top, we go, but you know, there are some things Jesus said I really don't like. It challenges me. I don't care. I don't like to be challenged. So you know what? I think I'm just going to erase that. 
Let's just woo, get rid of that. And by the end, what do you see? See Jesus? <laughs> nope. We've so distorted. We've so covered it up. We've so erased whatever we found offensive or whatever. And we've replaced it with our own desires, our own preferences, our own agenda that outsiders must abide by in order to be one of us. Is that what Jesus is about? You see, I think when you look at the history of Christianity, it's not a fun history because even as Christian missionaries went into the world, they basically brought a culture with them. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, which is why you'll go to a third world country and you'll see people wearing suits and ties and not the beautiful garments of their land because they were told to follow Jesus. You even have to dress a certain way. But all people really need to see and understand in the beginning is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, that was the Apostle Paul's philosophy and when he wrote to the Corinthian church. And he said this, these words, he says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If the Apostle Paul thought Jesus was enough, why don't we? It's a challenge, isn't it? In a culture that keeps telling us to erect walls and to, you know, really protect ourselves, Jesus is saying, look, I'm big enough. I can handle this. Yeah, know what you believe. Don't let anybody add or take away. Stand firm on Jesus. As I wrap up, I just want you to notice one more important thing about Jesus, and we really haven't said this today. Jesus was way more concerned about our hypocrisy than he was our heresy. Go look. Read the Gospels. <laughs> look at the number of times he did not say the word heresy <laughs> and the number of times he did say the word, hypocr word hypocrite. <laughs> I read this week somebody said, a failure in practice is just as bad as a failure in theology. You see, we often think that false teaching or heresy might only apply to our ideas in theology but it's equally important what we do in practice. I ran across a quote this week from Ignatius of Antioch. He was considered to be one of the three most important apostolic fathers after Jesus, uh, his life. He wrote in 110 AD. He wrote these letters as he was on his way to be martyred for his faith. And he wrote, he said, look out for those who hold heretical opinions. And I love what he says the heretical opinions are. Heretical opinions about the grace of Jesus. They have no concern for love, none for the widow, none for the orphan, and none for the oppressed. Hold on. Where's the, where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the Trinity? Where's baptism? Where's all these other things that we may say are heresy? And he's like, well, in my opinion, look out for the real heresies, those that aren't embracing the grace of Jesus and then aren't living it out. You know what's really sad and tragic about the church, though? Throughout history, how we have handled heresy. Anybody study enough church history to know? We love to burn people at the stake. Even during the Reformation, I mean, you would think like Luther and Calvin and, and Zwingli and these guys, they're like, yeah, they're blazing the path forward. Reformation, yeah. Until you dig in and you find they weren't too clean themselves in like tying a stone around somebody's neck and dropping them in a river to kill them. Yeah, 500 years ago, that's what we were still doing.
Isn't that crazy? Man, we have got to figure out a better way of dealing with heresy. And I'm just going to tell you, there's going to be people in your lives that when you begin to talk about these things, you're going to know immediately this isn't worth it. They're not ready. They're not coming from a place of humility and really wanting to dialogue. You know what you do? Walk away. Jesus said there's times you've got to shake the dust off your feet and turn around and go somewhere else. But that doesn't mean we stop loving. That doesn't mean we get to be a jerk to them. What it means is we reveal to them the Jesus we find in Scripture. But we do need to evaluate that Jesus, don't we? Is the Jesus we're saying we're following, is he the one in the Bible or does he look more like us? Do we allow him to challenge us, to challenge our thinking, to challenge ourselves, to challenge our thinking about those around us, to challenge our behavior, to challenge how we may see and interact with the questions that we're going to tackle in the coming weeks? And in practice, how are we going to engage those around us? Belligerently, confrontationally? I hope not. I hope we have the same compassion that we hope they will have toward us. And I hope that we will show them genuine love. And ultimately, as I said last week, I hope we have a real strong dose of humility. You see, how we hold and live out our beliefs will speak volumes more than any theological idea we may claim to believe. Period. How are we living it out? We need an awareness that heresies are out there and we need to know the truth to help guide others towards the truth. But how we hold this is so critical. Remember, it's not Jesus plus our man-made religious ideas, and it's not Jesus minus our version of generic spirituality. It's just Jesus. And that's who we, that's who we're firmly, our firm foundation right there. Let's pray.